This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. Father in heaven, we, we thank you for our little ones and we thank you for the blessing of family. And we pray, Lord, that you will guard our children for you love them even more than we do. Please bless Hannah as she teaches and brings your word and your truth and may your spirit guard and defend them and plant inside of our children a seed of faith and raise them up to be mighty men and women of God. In Jesus' name. So for those who are here for the very first time and are not normally used to coming to a traditional church, this is an Anglican church, one of the old traditional denominations. And in our tradition, uh, we follow what's called a lectionary. It's a, a religious calendar and it's a, a biblical cycle of reading the Bible. And it's divided up over a period of three years. We're currently in year C, which means we're reading our way through and teaching through the Gospel of Luke. And uh, we've finished um, Pentecost and Trinity Sunday. And so the, in terms of a church calendar, we're into this thing called ordinary time. Anyone ever heard of it? Yeah, anyone know why it's called ordinary time? Nope, I haven't got a clue. It doesn't seem to be ordinary. Nothing seems to be ordinary with God, does it? But it is the, it is the term that, we, that we, we give for this season. It's between now until Advent and we pretty much will just stick with uh, the Gospel of Luke and read and study uh, what Jesus is doing, teaching in that Gospel. And one of the great blessings of a, of a lectionary is it means you have to tackle all the hard issues. Um, I've, got my, I've got my favorite uh, parts of the Bible, I'm sure you have too. And, uh, but with a lectionary at least, we have to wrestle with every part of the text, even the bits we might not like. The idea of a sacred time, of course, is a Jewish tradition. It comes from God, does it not? Time's very special to him. First thing that God made holy was time. At the end, as we go through creation, God makes the world and says it's good, but when he gets to the Sabbath, he says this, wow, this is holy. And so even though we call it ordinary, it's very special to the Lord too. And so in today's cycle of reading Bible, we come to a demon slaying. And uh, this is... This, this, is a, this story of the demoniac is in all the synoptics. So it's in Matthew, it's in Mark, and it's in, it's in Luke. And uh, the stories, are, there's a few variations. Mark 5 has the largest material on this, this incident. He has more information uh, for us to read. Uh, Luke has the shortest. Today's portion of, the, of Jesus and the demoniac is the smallest of the synoptic gospels of this encounter. And Matthew adds a little bit of information that the others don't have. He actually says it was two men, not, not one. Uh, but he also then doesn't use the, the name legion. He doesn't give the name of the demon. So what does that tell us? That we have these three different versions of, uh, of the same story. Well, probably tells us they're not borrowing from each other. Because if they are borrowing, anyone plagiarized anything? Usually we do it kind of word for word and we keep it to script. 
I'm not 100% sure Luke, Luke uh, is, is reading the Gospel of Mark. Because if he is, he's leaving stuff out. So, what they all have in common though, is it all follows the same event, which is the calming of the storm. So this, this event in the, in, in the Gospels always follows when Jesus is on the boat and he's sleeping. You all know it's a very familiar story. The wind and the waves come up to, to pound the, the boat. The fishermen, who are, who are good fishermen, think they're in trouble. When Jesus gets up, he calms the storm. And in each of those accounts, he's, he challenges his disciples by saying, where is your faith? Now, in our tradition, we, we too often think that faith is something that you sits inside your head, something that you believe. It's got something to do with it, but is more than that. Faith is not just something you believe. Faith in Hebrew is a verb. Doubt in Hebrew is a noun. Doubt in Hebrew isn't not believing in Jesus. Doubt is not doing anything about it. We encounter today some demons, lots of them, and they know who Jesus is. They have no faith. So perhaps one of the more better ways of saying emunah or faith in Hebrew is to use the word faithfulness. Sometimes many of our translations will actually say that when they're reading it in its uh, Hebrew context. So for those that don't know me, one of the things I've, I've learned to appreciate while being here in this country, and I've been in this country for 21 years, um, is iconography. It's not really a big, big deal for us Protestants. Uh, and so I'm going to do something that I, that's traditional for me now. I'm going to throw up an icon. And then you can all madly scream running from the church. <laughs> so a Greek, Greek icon. What's that saying? Pictures paint a thousand words? Now, in, in Jewish tradition, you don't just, and, and in actually ancient Christian tradition, you don't worship God with just two of your senses. You worship God with all of your senses. You worship the Lord, yes, by hearing his word, yes. You worship the Lord by singing, yes, you do. You're going to worship the Lord by tasting, yes, we will. And in the temple and in some traditional churches, you worship the Lord with your sense of smell. Okay, incense. Not a Catholic invention. It's in the tabernacle. So the idea of a, of a smell can actually assist your worship of the Lord. But you also worship God with your eyes. Now, a thousand years ago, when we didn't have a Bible, how did you read the Bible? You couldn't. So how did we do it? We did it with our eyes. You would read the Bible by going to church and you'd be look at the stained glass windows and you would see a man holding onto the sheep and you could stand there and hold onto your son's hand and say, there you go, that's Jesus the good shepherd. Or you could see a man keeping the, 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 the water at bay and you could say, look, son, that's Jesus guarding, uh, uh, calming the storm. So this one, 
This one is our story of Jesus and the demoniac. And it's actually borrowing a fair bit from, uh, from Matthew because he's got the two men as opposed to the one that we see here. And uh, uh, what I find interesting in this picture, now everybody when they look at a picture is going to see something different. Two big ones that, that strike me out is um, notice where Jesus is in relation to the disciples. That's a wall. And the, the, the disciples are on one side of the wall, but Jesus has crossed the boundary. Maybe that's the reason why they, they call this name the Gadarenes. Geder in Hebrew is a, is a type of fence, um, a boundary line, a, 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 a wall. Now that our text, the actual text that says that when they, they cross over to this region, perhaps that's the reason why it was given that name, okay, that, uh, uh, that it's Jesus that begins to cross over. The disciples don't. We're going to read in the text that Jesus gets out the boat. doesn't make any, have any mention that the disciples got out the boat. Just, just Jesus. Just Yeshua. And here, our two men are sitting in tombs, in sarcophagi. It's one of the natures of, the, of demons, one of the schemes of the enemy, is he comes in to do what? To lie to steal, to destroy. God is life. He is the complete opposite. Here he is crushing these men, sending them uh, into tombs. And they're chained. They're bound up. I mean, obviously, in the text, they're bound up by humans who are trying to protect themselves. But I often have a look at, uh, at, 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 at when I see people like that wrapped in chains and think of all the chains that we've put on ourselves the shackles and the bindings. We, uh, we try and liberated our culture by throwing God out the window, tearing the Ten Commandments off our, off our courthouses. We opened ourselves up to sexual liberality. Did that help us? Are we more free? Is our society any better? No. We've chained ourselves into some of the most crazy relationships that were never meant to exist. You can now go to the Western world and you can see a, a lady with three children and each child has a different father. Those kind of relationships weren't supposed to be there. We can have sex with whatever we want, including animals. It hasn't helped us. We're just trapped in darkness and bound ourselves up. The, this, these three sections, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and their discussion of this demon-possessed man gives us the most detailed description in the Bible of what possession is like. These guys are possessed for a long time. We're not told how he became possessed. We just know that it's been with him for a long time. These guys are not leaving. You invite something like this into your life, it will not go away. He has no clothes. He's thrown off all his covering. They're naked. And they live out in the wilderness like animals in around tombs. 
disguised and sleeping with the dead. He has super strength. He can throw off all the other humans who try and bound him. Violent and incredibly self-destructive. So sometimes they chained him up just so he can save himself. And they're out of control. All to, when, you, when you read the, the three passages, you always see that when they're demon-possessed, they have out-of-control behavior. And this is where I'm going to say it. If it challenges you, it challenges you. Some Christians think that when they're possessed by the Holy Spirit, they're out of control. That's not biblical. The fruit of the Spirit is peace, patience, joy, self-control. And the Spirit of the prophet is in control of the prophet. But here, these guys are out of control. So if you find yourself out of control, be careful. So let's have a look at our text. Jesus does something very interesting after he's calmed the storm and challenged our, our disciples, our heroes. Uh, where is your faith? Where's your faithfulness? Your persistence, your steadfastness? And they immediately sail to the opposite side of the Galilee. The eastern side of the Galilee is a, a part of the Decapolis region. It's a heavily Gentile region. You think, what is Jesus doing? This is this strange behavior by the Messiah? Has not Jesus himself said, I have come to the house of Israel, to the lost sheep of Israel? And when we read the Bible, we need to read it with two hands. On one hand, yes, Jesus has come to the house of Israel. And on the other hand, that doesn't mean he uh, uh, ignores Gentiles. Because he will heal the Syrophoenician woman. He will witness and share the faith to the Samaritans. And he will challenge the demons who rule in the land of the Gentiles. And that demonstrates, just from the other readings we read today, that Jesus is faithful to the words of God through the prophets and the Psalms. Because if you have the Psalms, if you have the prophets and you read them, what do you see? That God is faithful to Gentiles. The Psalms are the prayer book of the Jewish people. You pray these Psalms every month. And they say that the Lord is going to bless the Gentiles. The Gentile kings are going to come and worship the Lord. All the nations of the earth, as are the Gentiles, are going to come and, under, and know who God is. Hallelujah, I don't know. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. So from the Psalms and the prophets, there already was the, was the mission that the Gentiles are going to hear. So yes, on one hand, Jesus is being faithful to Scripture. He's going to the Gentiles. And yes, he is also faithful as the Jewish Messiah to the house of Israel. In the Second Temple period, the Galilee was, was known, especially in the prophets, as the Galilee of the Gentiles. It had once been a heavily Jewish area, which was destroyed by the, uh, by the Assyrian invasion and repopulated with Gentiles. Hence, the prophets begin to call it the Galilee of the Gentiles. And the Maccabees had come along and decided to repopulate the, the Galilee with some Jews. So the first thing we do is we go there and we convert people. 
we give them a really good option. Become Jews or die. Okay, think I'll become Jewish, thanks. So we've got some Jews now and some Gentiles living together. And, uh, and then we need to repopulate so they, they move families that are down south and they move them north. And that's how Jesus' family gets to the north. Where's Jesus' family come from originally? Bethlehem, in Judea. And it was during the Maccabean period that a portion of his family is, uh, is, migrates north, probably not by choice. And so Jesus, as, uh, as, a, as coming from the tribe of Judah, begins his career in the north, which is the place of redemption. It says in Leviticus, best book of the Bible, Leviticus 1 verse 11, make your sacrifices to the north of the altar. Why? Doesn't say. Just says, that's what I want you to do. So you have my altar, I want you to go to the north, I want you to make a sacrifice, then you can bring, put a bit of blood, carve up your animal, divide it up. So the north becomes the place of redemption. That's where your redemption starts. That's where your, your, your beginning to worship the Lord starts, in the north. And that's why the prophets say, you in the north, Zebulon, Naphtali, you northern tribes, you're going to see a great light. Arise, shine, for your light has come. But the darkness still covers the, the face of the earth. And so Jesus starts his ministry in the north, which is actually a very biblical thing to do. So our text says that Jesus gets out the boat and uh, the, the writer of our icon, uh, painter of our icon, put the little wall there because Jesus is the first one who crosses the boundary and starts going to have Gentile contact. Now notice, Jesus doesn't enter the city. He does not go into a Gentile city. He doesn't go into a Gentile house. That's not going to happen. That boundary isn't going to be broken until Peter in Acts chapter 10 where Peter is actually going to go into the house of Cornelius and they're going to call him up on it in Acts 11. They're going to, they're going to bring him to Jerusalem and they're going to say, did you really go into a Gentile house and eat? Oh my gosh. Okay, that doesn't happen until Acts 10. Here, Jesus is just on land. Okay, but the, the man comes out uh, to meet him. And then we, we get this little challenge of names. The demon and Jesus begin to challenge each other with their names. Now names in the Bible are a really big deal. Okay? And uh, in Jewish tradition, the way you would uh, overcome a demon is you would do it by its name. You would need to understand its name to have control of it. Same with the demons. What do the demons call Jesus? Jesus. They know, they know who he is, so they, they use his name. You are Jesus, you are the son of the most high God. Don't torment us. So they have their little attack, trying to get control of the Lord. And the Lord responds with, what's your name? We are legion. Now notice, even though Jesus pulls out the name of the legion, he never uses it to destroy the demon. So he could do this even without knowing their name. Jesus simply defeats them. The demons themselves, they don't want to go to the abyss. Where's the abyss? No one knows where the abyss is. I'm pretty sure none of you have been there. 
The demons don't want to go there. This is not their home. Whatever it is, it certainly isn't pleasant for them. Okay? It's, a, it's, a, it's a prison. We don't know exactly where it is, but the, the, uh, the artist has the demons, these little small little black things, right, running on the backs of pigs, falling into the, the abyss, wherever, wherever, they, wherever that is. And in our text, the demons enter animals. So they could control animals, they also control humans. And you find that in Genesis already, yes? The, 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 the devil enters the snake and talks. So the sort of idea that, that the enemy can, can take control of, uh, of wildlife uh, is in both testaments. And when I was reading this text, I was struck uh, with, uh, with a thought. I don't know if you've read this text and thought. Jesus heals a man, maybe two men, and 2,000 pigs die. So what's the value of a human over the value of an animal? Yes, God loves animals. The Torah does tell us to take care of animals. It says you will not eat a live animal. Even animals are going to rest on the Sabbath. And when it's time to, to kill an animal, you do it humanely. And you don't mix uh, the milk of the kid and its mother's milk. You, you do not destroy family genes. Okay? And when you need to take an egg, a, a, a small bird away, chase away the mum so it will not suffer. So the Torah is very keen to take care of animals. I always like it that even animals can rest. But they are not the same value as a human. That is another one of those interesting ideas that are, are floating around today. God loves the world, yes. And he loves creatures, yes. And there are creatures in heaven, yes. At least I know there's one white horse. And I'm pretty darn sure he's not the only one. Could you imagine if he was the only one? And the white horse is sitting there going, I can't wait for Jesus to go back down to earth because then I could actually be next to some other horses. Really lonely up here. So there's probably lots of animals in heaven and then they also worship the Lord, which is also interesting. When you read Revelation, everybody's worshiping the Lord, including the creatures, which is great. But they don't have the same value as a human. Humans have the highest of value. And Jesus loves this Gentile man or men more than those uh, the animals. After doing the, the cleansing, then there's another challenge. The people who come along and see the miracle, uh, they don't leap for joy, they're actually afraid. Something Jesus did made them afraid and they want him to go away. Because Jesus is challenging, is he not? And, and the world, the world that we live in is very uncomfortable with Jesus. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I go to parties and say, hey, everyone, it's great to come to this party. I want everybody to be comfortable, so I'm going to talk to you about Jesus. Um, you know, it doesn't really, uh, that, that really endear me to the local people, does it? You know, Jesus makes people uncomfortable. And he's a challenge to them. Particularly when we say things like, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Is that true? Yes, it is. 
It's a challenge. It makes people nervous to hear it. So usually people get nervous so much they say, can you please go away? Can you please stop talking? Actually I don't want to hear it. I know miracles have happened in your life and I've probably even seen them. And then they ignore them. Isn't that interesting? Every time you go through the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, doesn't matter how many miracles people see, they just ignore it. There's a healing in the temple. So how come the priests don't believe? There's a healing in front of Pharisees. Why are they not flocking to Jesus? There's miracles happen in all of our lives, yet we still don't believe. Miracles don't save you. Who saves you? Jesus saves you. And then he does a miracle. And you will too. And they're great. But don't rely on the miracle. So at this point, I want to have a little break in our narrative to acknowledge that this text does bring up the fact that demons exist. And some of our problems in, uh, in 2,000 years of our Christian tradition uh, and uh, exegesis is one, we sometimes ignore demonic activity. Oh, they don't exist anymore. Or they never did. Or the opposite is we put too much emphasis on them. And uh, suddenly we want to talk about them more than we want to talk about Jesus. And we'll write whole books on it. Now they do exist. And you might encounter a few. And when you do, you can beat them. Because Jesus beat them. And, you're, and you follow in his footsteps. And you do greater things than he does. Unfortunately, sometimes some, some streams of our, of our tradition go a bit further. And we don't just want to beat up demons. We want to beat up the principalities and powers. And we'll write whole books on spiritual mapping. So this has got nothing to do with that. There is a heavenly a realm. And there is a war up there. But you and I aren't fighting it. Revelation 12 acknowledges that there's a war in heaven. Revelation 12 verse 7. And who fights? says Michael and his angels fight the dragon and his angels. Even Jesus is not fighting. Which is interesting. Because you're in heaven. I mean if you're having a war in heaven and you ask someone like me, Aaron, do you want to drive out your main battle tank, God, and fight? I would say, yes. There's actually these, these other, the heavenly realms fight the other heavenly realms and they win. Daniel says Michael wins. And then we get texts where we have to take control of strongholds. And people think, oh, the strongholds in the heavens. Finish the verse. It says take every thought captive. Take control down here of your emotions. Or take control of uh, your thoughts and vain imaginations. You defeat the demons here. And you do so with the power of the Spirit. Demonic activity is, uh, is very real, and so in old traditional churches, and that includes the Catholics, that uh, in every diocese you have to have at least one exorcist. Did you know that? I didn't know that. But, uh, so I'm actually kind of keen to figure out who our exorcist is in our diocese. 
It's not me. But um, it, it means that the church acknowledges that there is a demonic realm, but it also acknowledges that you can beat it. And that actually is good news. The final part of our text is not just discussing demons. It talks about the man, the person whom Jesus really does love. The, the one where he turns around to his disciples and says, this is how faithful God is, that we're going to go out and save some Gentiles, particularly these ones. Is that the man wants to come with Jesus, would have been the first Gentile disciple, yes? And what does Jesus say? No. Because I've got my other mission. I've got to go to the house of Israel. But for you, you go back and you tell them everything that God has done for you. You think about that. Here's this man who's going to go back and he's going to share the love of God and what God has done in his world, in his life. And he does not have a Bible. He does not have the Holy Spirit. He may be, but the text doesn't say, does it? He was not baptized. I mean, the water was probably full of floating dead pigs right about now, okay? You could just imagine, Jesus gets out the boat and walks up a mountain. Peter won't go anywhere near the unclean land, so he stays in his boat, talking to his disciples, looks up, 2,000 pigs running right towards him. Jesus comes back, la, 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 la. And you can just imagine Jesus, uh, Peter going, Jesus, what did you do? That was the Australian version of this, uh, <laughs> of this text. But without a Bible, without a baptism, without the Holy Spirit, without any time in a discipleship, without going to Bible college, what does Jesus say to the man? You go and you declare. Go and tell everybody what God has done. So on one hand, Bible colleges are good, they're great. Who, we, we want trained shepherds. No, we do. We want people to know. We want people to have studied some languages. We want people to be able to understand uh, the context of the text and be able to deliver us some truth. We pray for it. Please, Lord, give us good shepherds. So we should all do Bible studies. We should all get together and encourage each other. We should all become disciples of Jesus. We should all listen to Jesus and try and look like him. Yes. But even if you're not in a Bible college, you can still declare what God has done in your life and no one can take that away from you. They might not like it. They might be challenged by it. They might be fearful. They might even try and drive you away but you can do it. So brothers and sisters, declare what God has done in your life because you can all probably stand up and tell me something. You could probably tell me a miracle. You could probably tell me a deep truth. You could probably tell me something amazing that the Lord has done that would astound uh, even the Gentiles. But then declare it. Declare it because that's what Jesus wants us to do because he has defeated death and he is alive and because he's alive we are too and that is good news amen thank you for listening if you've been blessed by this teaching let us know by leaving a comment on our facebook page or leaving a review in itunes you can offer practical support to christ church jerusalem 
by clicking the Donate Now button on our Facebook page. Thank you and blessings from the City of the King.